Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. With host General Grange and co-host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ranger Doug. Tonight, we're in our fifth program in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, our guests include Doug Wise, Dr. Brian Downing, Dean Chang, and myself. We'll be discussing more about Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, we'll focus on what more can the U.S. do in support of the war effort and what should it be doing. We've seen a number of things pan out recently. It appears that Russia is now consolidating its gains along that strip we discussed before, and there may be movement towards some kind of peace accommodation. We'll have to wait and see. As well, we've seen the financial system turned on its head and now rumors of a growing block of perhaps another financial system involving China and Russia, at least, with others perhaps joining up. We'll have to wait and see about that, too. Anyway, let's hear from our guests. Over to you, General. Thank you, Ranger Doug. And again, I want to welcome past guests and always welcome to our program, Dean and Brian, Doug and Doug uh, Wise, and also Ranger Doug uh, to the panelists. I'd like to start off with a question tonight. Uh, as you look at the, the news and everybody's talking about uh, NATO and NATO involvement, uh, the meetings they're having, the uh, European Union, uh, other organizations here and there, international organizations. And you look at the actions that the United States has taken either unilaterally or, or with other allies against the Russians or in support of Ukraine in this present war. Are those actions adequate? And, and I'd like to start off with uh, Dean. If you could just give us some words on do you think the actions by the United States government are adequate? Given that the United States has made it very clear that it is not going to intervene directly in support of the Ukrainian government, it seems that the U.S. is probably doing about as much as it can. It is providing weapons. It is presumably providing some level of planning and assistance and seems to be prepared to impose heavy financial sanctions on the Russians, which at the in the long term is going to hurt Russia as much as casualties on the battlefield. So I would suspect that perhaps the things that remain to be done would be to help advise the Ukrainian military leadership on how to think more operationally. This was the kind of thing that we provided the Croats during the Balkan conflict, and perhaps also think about extending financial aid to Kiev if this war continues. Thank you. So on that, uh, just to go a little deeper on some of the points you just made on the advice, uh, you know, I think it was uh, in 2014, 15, 16, somewhere in there, we started along with other NATO countries advising the Ukrainian military. I remember in partnership for peace exercises after the down, doing the same in Ukraine. But, you know, generally more so after uh, Putin invaded the Crimea and other borders of Ukraine. So I think the advising was taking place. And some would say, and there's been some articles out on this, that the advice and training that the United States and other NATO forces did do in Ukraine prior to this conflict actually had been proven on the battlefield um, compared to you know Western standards of training, i.e., 
I don't know if the Ukrainian forces now have an NCO Corps, but there was training done on how to use at least senior privates, why you don't have and should have an NCO Corps. But how to, how to do some of the fighting that we used to do in the training areas and Hohenfeldts and Grafenbeer in Germany, as an example, or even back in the States at Fort Bragg, Fort Hood, 29 Palms, uh, different places like that on the use of combined arms. And it seems to me that some of that may have helped the Ukrainian army in a current fight. Ranger Doug, you've been involved in some of that stuff. What's your, what's your, what's your comments on what has been done with the Ukrainian military? And what and what Dean said on advise, advising train. Yes, I'm I'm aware that uh, there was a long running covert intelligence training program under another title uh, that has been advising them certain things, and several articles have emerged recently saying that our special forces, also known as Green Berets, been providing training, helping them organize small teams that would melt away and hit and move and not engage the Russians on the way the Russians would expect to engage. And so I think that we've done about as much as we could before this time. I think at this point, the majority of those forces have retired because if they stay in Ukraine, of course, they are targeted. At the same time, there was an article that emerged uh, the other day that says that there are some U.S. forces that are now working on advanced force operations, which are those things that certain special operations and other elements do to prepare the way for some kind of campaign to be run, either by us or some partners or allies. I think we're being very deliberate in not saying what we're doing, but I've said to many different audiences these days that uh, the best way to keep a secret today is chaos. In days past, Churchill would tell us that uh, three people could keep a secret if two are dead. But right now, with social media and everything else, publicizing everything you're doing, just look back at Tom Clancy's book, Rainbow Six, and see that a very secretive anti-terror unit is getting ready to make a hostage rescue when someone popped a video of their people moving in, and it uh, screwed the whole exercise. This is now 10, 15 years ago. So... Our forces are being very careful to maintain low visibility. We obviously have some very highly trained people, and we have in our special forces units now organizations that uh, operate much like the old OSS did, different capabilities to work sources and weapons and training and prepare a battlefield much differently than we've done in the past. Back to you, General. So on the advice piece, you have at the senior levels, advising on combined arms and, as an example, joint operations. Uh, let me let me go to Doug Wise on. Let's say you this don't presume anything's going anything is going on. How would you advise on this combat environment where the war is today? Uh, and on the employing advice on UW unconventional warfare techniques procedures with the Ukrainians, or do you think they're trained well enough? Well, General, that that's that's a question. I expect that the Ukrainians are literally learning on the fly and applying the lessons, you know, costly lessons that they've learned, obviously. But I think they've been very effective in, you know, engaging into the weak parts of Russian command and control, the Russian quality of Russian equipment, and the poor Russian military leadership and poor Russian soldiership. 
so I think the Ukrainians have uh, been the beneficiary of years of training and coaching and mentoring by U.S. special operations elements. And I think we're seeing that on the battlefield. Back to the question you asked a bit ago, uh, quite frankly, there was more that we needed to do than just professionalization of both the conventional and the special operations part of the Ukrainian military. It's the equipment provision, the sophisticated weapon systems, which quite frankly at the time were prohibited by policy, became a little bit more flexible in policy as the Russians became more aggressive, passive aggressive. I think would be probably a better way to describe it. But the reality is the the weapon systems that are necessary for the Ukrainians to prevail in the future on this battlefield should have been provided as part of that training and equip program, as you said, that began in 2014. Visited Ukraine several times uh, between 2014 and 2016 and got a chance to see the extraordinary work that the U.S. military uh, had, had done, you know, had really, really brought the professionalization of the Ukrainian military to, to a high level. The problem is they didn't have the weapon systems. So we're now kind of playing catch up. And then, of course, the weapon systems aren't necessarily intuitive where you can just pull it out of the crate, clean the cosmoline off and go use the weapon like you could in times past. So these are sophisticated weapons. And so the latency between the need for the weapons and the arrival of the weapons and then the challenges of where do you provide that training? Do you, do you send people into, into Ukraine or do you pull the Ukrainians out? Do you do a combination of the above? Uh, and I think there are advantages and disadvantages to, to each of those. But I think the investment that the United States of America and its allies put into professionalization is paying off. It's now time to marry that up with sophisticated weaponry and drive the Russians into a condition where they can't possibly take major cities in Ukraine. Back to you, General. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Doug. And so there's two points that just came out in the discussion so far. And the first question about the actions to date adequate. Are they what we need to do to support Ukraine to either stabilize the situation to win, whatever. We'll talk about the outcome in a moment. But we talked about advice and assist, and we talked about weaponry. Now, if you look at the conventional part of the of the battlefield, uh, where you have tank armored unit, you know armored units, you have mechanized units, you have some airborne naval infantry, etc. A lot of those fights are conventional fights. They happen to be quite often in built-up areas where the defender has the advantage in the, in, in urban urban terrain. And some of those, some of that weaponry that you just mentioned, anti-tank weapons, uh, stingers, playing havoc with Russian forces. If you look at the uh, battlefield damage assessments, both in personnel and equipment, a lot taken out by anything from sniper rifles to anti-tank weapons uh, to steam missiles, uh, tritting uh, Russian forces. And when they're, and when they're, and some of the, the, the waterways that are in Ukraine, the marshes and that, that, that cause a channelization of armored units where they have to stick to the roads, lined up, 
fight through rubble in, in urban areas. Those weapons are having quite an effect. What the president of Ukraine keeps asking for is combat aircraft and uh, air defense weaponry, uh, those type of things, which uh, are really killing most of the Ukrainian forces, uh, to include the civilian population. Those are hard weapon systems to move politically into the theater of operations. And I think that's obviously why the U.S. and some of the NATO forces are holding back on some of that weaponry, except for maybe Turkey with armed drones and some other some other pieces of equipment. But uh, those two things uh, on advice and weaponry, I guess you can argue that the, the death all the way down to the tactical level. Well, that's great. Let's uh, take some time and enjoy a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back. And here's General Grange. I want to move on to just second question. It's tied to the first one on what's adequate and what has that done? 
if you look at the second, third order effects of how, let's say, weak we have been, or or if you think it's adequate, I think Dean said it was adequate right now with with what we're able to do geopolitically, and you know, of course, with you know the balance of nuclear powers, et cetera. But do you think that the hesitation on piling on early enough with enough strength for the for Ukraine is now causing second and third order effects in other places in the world as they watch this 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 conflict unfold. Dean, could you comment on the second third order effects that we're seeing around the globe? So I think one of the interesting questions that has been underexplored is that even if the Russians win, however you want to define it, in Ukraine, they will have gone through their best equipment Uh, Hundreds of tanks, thousands of armored vehicles are shattered across the Ukrainian landscape. Many of their best troops have been killed. Uh, There are reports of 15 uh, general officers or colonels having been killed. So the Russian military is going to come out of this war severely damaged, and that's assuming that they win. And this raises some very interesting problems. One is how are the Russians going to rebuild their military, especially in light of sanctions and a potentially crippled economy? The other element to this is that given the ties between Russia and China, to what extent is Russia going to wind up forcibly in the Chinese orbit at the end of this conflict, simply because they will have nowhere else to turn? And conversely, to what extent does China see it in its interest to, in a sense, prolong this conflict, not by sending Chinese People's Volunteers 2.0 to Ukraine, but rather keeping the Russians essentially on life support, both economically and militarily. And I think that as this war grinds on, we are going to see some interesting dynamics emerge between Moscow and Beijing. I think you're exactly right. I, I believe that at the beginning of the conflict, or right before it was launched, Russia and China came together closely. And I also believe at the beginning, China was looking at this closely on its relationship on what to do with Taiwan. I do believe China actually has second thoughts now. This is a great Heritage Foundation conference to have on this topic. Because as they see how Russia's being isolated because of how, well, several reasons, how the war is being pursued, uh, the 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 media piece of it and what the world is seeing and what's being highlighted and everybody has a chance to see the atrocities, different things that are going on, which are in every war, but they're highlighted more today than ever before. I think China might be having some second thoughts about how they can get isolated because they enjoy number two in the world power, at least economically, and they don't want to lose that. And they could they could be severely hurt. Now, granted, they have some things out there that the rest of the world needs, but um, I think I think they're having some second thoughts. But I do also believe that that a lot of our enemies are being emboldened because of in an interpretation of a lack of some resolve to help Ukraine. Even though I, I believe you said I think it was you, Dean, that said a lot more has gone in early on than we see. And Doug also said that there's a lot we don't see. And, and I hope that's the case. Uh, but the, the second, third effects on this are going to be tremendous on the balance throughout the world on, on power and partnerships and, and everything else. 
if you just take what we're doing though with Ukraine, helping enough, the actions that we're taking, it makes you also think the actions we have taken to date, what is our end state? What are, what are we trying to do? What is the United States trying to do with what we have done so far in our efforts? Because we have to think about our own country and what, and what, is we, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, Doug, you want to answer that? Yeah, General, I can uh, give that a shot. I think the most important objective that the United States has, along with its allies, is to bring the violence to a stop, to get the Russians to quit indiscriminately slaughtering the Ukrainian people, destroying literally the infrastructure that supports Ukraine, humiliate and exterminate the Ukrainian identity as a separate thing from Russia. And so for us to get the Russians to stop the slaughter is the most important objective. And I got to believe that for President Biden and the heads of state of our allied countries, that that is absolutely the most important. I think back also to your previous question, I think the objective is while we are applying, you know, extraordinary economic pressure and strictures and limitations and punitive steps against Russia, the United States and, and the West, you know, have got to be careful about having about how, it's got to be managed in a way that maximizes the, the, the pain to Russia that doesn't cause catastrophic collapse of third world countries that are continents away from where the conflict is now. Ukraine was, quite frankly, the source of much of agricultural chemicals that, that the African continent needed. And it was relatively cheap because Ukraine was able to produce that. That's all gone. Obviously, the, the petroleum uh, flow, it, the industry is now trying to adapt and maintain some sort of price control so that prices don't escalate beyond where it would have an, an existential impact to national economies. And again, I think when you saw, and you saw better than any of us on here because you were more intimately involved, the fact that the, the, resist, the, the disunity at the beginning was not so much, I think, fear of Russian military escalation. It was fear in the EU of what would be the economic impacts, particularly with the loss of Russian natural gas and crude oil. And so once the threat of Russia subsumed that worry over economic impacts, I think we got that, that unity. But it's an example of what we have got to manage very carefully. And I'm very pleased that, uh, that the United States of America is now showing strong leadership on the global stage, because I think we are the only nation in the world that can actually help to manage all of the elements that we need to manage so that we can have the impact we need on Russia, we can stop the slaughter, and we not do economic self-destruction to a degree where serious instabilities are felt in either developing nations, emerging dem democracies and 
certainly well-established democracies as well, General. So that'd be my answer to your question. So with that, Dean, with the, with those comments from Doug, what other what other additional actions can we take? We talk, you talked a little bit earlier about you know advise and assist, but when you're looking at uh, what's happening on the battlefield, the effect it's going to have, let's just say on, on the wheat crop, for instance, all of Europe and just about everywhere outside of Ukraine, the fuel issues, just the two economic ones that that Doug mentioned. What else can we do to speed up the stopping the bloodshed, the, the combat actions where they where people come to a table? And of course, there's not a whole lot. The, the, the solutions are not not a lot of good options. But how can you speed up the end of the conflict? What actions can we take? Well, the problem with speeding up an end of the conflict, I think, is does the United States, NATO, or the West have a theory of victory? Um, and how does our theory of victory align with? Uh, President Zelensky. Uh, one of the questions that I think uh, and hasn't been addressed is, what is it that we want? Uh, it's fine to say that we want an end to the bloodshed and especially the indiscriminate slaughter of civilians. Obviously, that's that's desirable. But is does that mean that Russia gets to control and maintain control over the uh, breakaway republics? Does it get to keep any place where there are currently Russian troops and tanks. Uh, I don't think President Zelensky will accept that. But unfortunately, it's not at all clear that the Ukrainians have the wherewithal. Uh, They certainly have the heart and the guts. But whether they simply have the manpower and equipment to push the Russians out, and how long would it take, and, and how many casualties would that take? At the end of the day, it is going to be up to President Zelensky to figure out what his acceptable terms are. In the meantime, I think for we in the West, the most important things are to keep the logistics supply lines open so that the Ukrainians have the wherewithal to do whatever it is that they want to do, um, and to maintain the financial and economic capacities, the sinews of war, if you will. In the meantime, one of the things to also consider, given uh, what was just said about energy, is you know, three years ago, we, the United States became self-sufficient in energy. And now we're back to importing, including importing until um, the sanctions hit Russian gas and Russian oil. Uh, we were, in a sense, bankrolling the Russian military. Uh, and even after the invasion began, uh, this administration chose not to uh, clamp down on that oil trade for, for a number of days. So one of the things that we could do would be to uh, remove a lot of the regulatory and other roadblocks that are keeping shale, keeping fracking, et cetera, from getting back into uh, the, the forefront. Because if we supply natural gas to Europe, Europe is much less beholden to Russia, and it then becomes easier, not easy, but easier, to forge that coalition consensus to face down the Russians. Um, right now, we're obviously in spring heading towards warmer temperatures. The question is going to be, if this conflict continues into the fall and winter, will the Europeans be there alongside us as temperatures drop, if factories start to close, if uh, houses start getting colder? Uh, uh, former Russian Prime Minister Medvedev said, I look forward 
to 2,000 euros per 1,000 cubic meters of gas. To give you a sense of how much we're talking about an increase here, uh, I believe last fall, the spot price in Europe was something like 830 euros per 1,000 cubic meters of gas. Medvedev was clearly threatening Europe, saying, are you prepared to suffer two and a half times the price for natural gas to stop us from going into Ukraine? And that is an interesting question when we have a new government in Germany, when uh, President Macron is going to be facing elections uh, later this this spring, um, whether Europe will stay unified in support of Ukraine um, once the temperature starts to drop. I do also have a question, I guess, which is I'm not quite sure I understand the difference between a MiG-29 and a javelin. Now, obviously, you know, one is a, a, a shoulder-fired anti-tank missile and the other is a fighter airplane. But why it is that there seems to be hesitancy on supplying MiG-29s for Ukrainians to fly versus javelins, which are destroying Russian tanks and killing Russian soldiers. I suspect that from the Russian perspective, there may be far less of a difference than we seem to have uh, constrained ourselves into believing. Yeah, I do believe, and maybe Ranger Doug can take this on, I do believe it has to do with what, what's killing most of the Ukrainian soldiers and civilians is missile fire, artillery, combat aircraft. Not as much on ground troop on ground troop. And and his concern, President Lezinski's concern is what to do about those systems. You can't do much about the missile firing from other, across the other side of the Black Sea and that, unless you have that capability, which they don't really. I would like to just pause for a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. On VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide? GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. VDAC an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities, empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nife.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. 
Once again, our website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Here's your host, General Grange. Doug, you want to answer that? Yeah, contextual. What Dean had to say, which is, I think we've been over generations, at least sub- subsequent to the Rush- Russian withdrawal of Afghanistan, we've been conditioned and, and into into submission and some uh, uh, some some less than than a, than decisive action in response to some pretty aggressive actions by Russia on the global stage. So I think. You know, people look and go javelins. It's very, I mean, this is kind of weird, but very small. It's on the ground, you know, aircraft in the air. And a javelin isn't going to threat, threaten the Russian homeland where a fighter, you know, a MiG-29 actually has a fuel load to get into Belarus and into the Russian homeland. So, But in the end, we've been conditioned to, quite frankly, be passive to Russian aggression. And so I think that is kind of ingrained into all of the foreign policies of the of the United States and, and the West. And I think that drives a lot of our caution, quite frankly, both in the past past couple of weeks and will certainly have an effect in the, in the future couple of weeks. Yeah, th- thanks for that. Um, two other things that, that Dean brought up I'd like to cover real quick. One is when we're talking about um, power and, and fuel. Uh, he talked about he talked about fracking and that uh, when a country's not does not have the self sufficiency to sustain uh, projected warfare or make or even have to be in position to make decisions on what course of action to take. You really hit on what we talked in one of our other programs on whole nation. When you cannot self sustain, in other words, when you can't, you don't have enough to say fuel or rare earth elements or pharmaceuticals, whatever the case may be. For your own people, let alone support your allies, you lose a lot of influence, decision-making options, and you also lose positional advantage. So your comment on it, I think, is right on. And that, at least that's the way I interpret what you said. The other you're talking about the lines that, in other words, lines on a map. The President Lenzinski, it's, it's, it's up to him what he decides. I guess it's not going to be one of those situations where Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill draw lines on a map of what country's borders look the way they look after World War One or World War Two. It seems to be a little different today. Maybe not. Maybe so. But Russians are in certain terrain of the recognized borders, at least by the world community of Ukraine. And once someone occupies dirt, it's very difficult then to change that line back to where it was. Very difficult. And once you plant a flag, it, it is tough to move those people, those soldiers out of there. 
Now, the, so the Russians right now are really moving a lot of defensive positions. They've had several offensive operations fail. They were just recently getting ready to, to launch a large amphibious operation, the Black Sea, on well, the right and the left, east or west side of Odessa. That mission was, we believe, postponed. And those forces pushed to take on other fighting to, to relieve some pressure, help, uh, help advance, uh, some movement on, on Russian forces to the east of Odessa. They've never really put that plan in action. And actually the naval infantry of the Russian forces is well-trained and they had quite a, quite a well-trained combined armed forces with air assault, airborne forces, et cetera. So those lines though, it seems that they have limited Obje- objectives right now. They have the lines on the map or the front lines on the map. So how do how do we how do we influence moving those lines back where they were, or are those going to be the negotiated state going forward? So you brought that up about the lines, Dean. Any other comments on that? Because that's the part that really bothers me and how that out comes out. Well. The reality of the Russians failing to make the advances that they presumably had hoped to do versus the Ukrainians' limitations of simply being a smaller country means that uh, without negotiation, this degenerates most likely into a very ugly positional conflict of making gains measured in tens and hundreds of meters. Uh, World War I fought with World War III weapons, so to speak. Um, now, that how long is that likely to last, especially if you have a broken back Russian economy? Uh, one of the concerns that I have is whether the Russians are taking advantage of this lull uh, to go defensive, uh, hope that uh, the Ukrainians burn themselves out trying to push them out. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, sort of in classic Russian logistics fashion with stop-and-go offensives, bringing up a lot of artillery, bringing up uh, more munitions and things, and then rather than finesse, going after Kiev or Kharkiv or any of these other cities with the traditional Russian meat cleaver approach of just blasting anything in their path with what Stalin termed the god of war, artillery. And when we look at how the Russians ultimately won in Chechnya, uh, that seems to have been their approach in the Second Chechen War, which was to simply destroy Grozny block by block. And um, without significant pressure on the Russians to not go down that path, uh, which can really only be brought by the West, but China would have to be willing to join in. Um, It's not clear... Uh, what other alternatives might emerge, especially if Putin really has staked his personal future on this? Okay, Brian, uh, we've talked about, we're down now on to the war effort, and we know that the Russians forces any of the, the fronts, they, get a, they have a primary objective and they have about four supporting objectives on their advances, basically three sides of Ukraine. It seems that they're bogged down, that they have some sustainment problems. They've changed some of their actually well-planned attacks let's say the one on Odessa with their the naval infantry on a, on a grandiose amphibious assault supported by air assaults of different factors. A lot of supporting fires planned. 
which you uh, here you know being used here and there getting ready for this attack and it just just kind of foot by foot by foot getting uh getting uh advances or they're getting pushed back it's almost like uh i think it was dean said like uh world war one with uh, world war three weaponry what do you think putin's decision is going to have to be now coming up and he may not show his cards yet but with the conditions on the battlefield right now, what is what do you think the outcome on Putin's decision will be on resolution of this war? Well, I think Putin is is uh, dialing back the grandiosity of his effort, but I think he's still trying to make some headway along the Baltic coast, and I think he has some pincer movements going on in the east that uh, could be trouble in the next few days. Uh, let's talk about Mariupol, the big city down on the Black Sea. Uh, people have been uh, watching that battle for quite a while. And I would make the analogy to the Battle of Sirte uh, during the Libyan War, where there were these ragtag militias that were being attacked by the, the best troops that uh, Gaddafi had, which were not very good, but they were far more disciplined and far more uh, far better armed than what the uh, militias insert at. Well, in the course of a few weeks, the certain militias just wore down the Thomas brigades to nothing and had to pull back. It was destroyed. The other analogy would be Kobani during the ISIL war. A handful of Kurdish militias were uh, crowded around uh, that town, assaulted by ISIL, which at that point seemed invincible. So and behold, ISIL was worn down and destroyed. We could see Russian troops worn down and destroyed in these battles along the Baltic coast, uh, beginning, beginning at Mariupol, but elsewhere. As you mentioned, Odessa, the operation seems to have been called off. Uh, if the Russians feel that they could combine the naval air Sea and ground campaigns on Odessa, uh, that's pretty dubious. They've shown very little ability to organize things, collaborate things. Uh, so I think uh, we could see the Russian army just continue to take very serious casualties along the Baltic coast. I would like, I'm sorry, the Black Sea coast. Uh, I would like to see some ship killing missiles transported to Ukraine. They have their own Neptunes. They've taken out a patrol boat with a Stugna, one of their own anti-tank missiles. And they apparently hit an LST in Bryansk this morning with uh, a drone, apparently. We don't really know for sure. Uh, so I don't really see Putin pulling back as much as we thought he might 24 hours ago. Shifting up to Kiev, uh, I really see the Russian army in deep trouble up there. Uh, if you look at a map to the town of Bordyansk, uh, the Ukrainian forces are moving there. And if they do take that town, they will be in a position to cut off about 20,000 Russian troops around Kiev. It would be like the Falaise Argentine gap back in 1944 during World War II when the German 7th Army was just cut off and destroyed by artillery. Unlike that, I think the Ukrainians would be reluctant to inflict devastating losses on the Russian troops as much as they'd love to for fear of just a wild, crazy, 
vicious response from Putin and the Russian generals to include perhaps chemical weapons and possibly nuclear weapons. So I see the Russian army being worn down. Uh, it could be in very serious trouble. It could be essentially non-functional in four or five weeks. Look at the casualties they're taking. Look at the discipline problems they're having. Uh, desertion rates, we don't really know, but uh, they're coming up there. So that's how I see it. The uh, Russian army is being worn down to non-functionality. And let's help the Ukrainians do that. Yeah, I'd like to take it just a step further because what you talked about on the Black Sea, and uh, not so much the fighting in Odessa, but in, in, in uh, Maripol and in, uh, Kherson, uh-huh. as an example. And, and then you went up north to Kiev. If you went east, the same thing you just described is happening in Kharkiv. What's your thoughts on, on why they have not cut the lines of communication from Lviv, Poland, that side, uh, towards Kiev from Belarus? I mean, Belarus. Is Belarus, the forces they have in Belarus, not the Belarus forces, but the Russian forces, not capable, not, not the, the quality of forces to cut those lines of communication to the West? Well, that's been one of the big questions. Why haven't they done that? There have been some airstrikes out there. There have been some missile strikes, but they don't. Perhaps they uh, just cannot allocate the troops there, that they feel they have to keep them for reserves there. We have heard some... Uh, talk that Belarusian troops would be used for this operation age of West, West Ukraine. That, I think, would be a disaster for Putin because the army of Belarus is pretty small. Furthermore, over half of the troops are draftees who put in 18 months of service. And by the way, I think they hate their government and they hate Putin. So if uh, those troops were sent into the Ukraine, I don't think they'd fight. And there's a good chance that a lot of them would turn against their commanders in the Belarus, in Western Ukraine. So that really goes ahead and just goes back to your comment on being bogged down with poor sustainment and very little options on enhancing any type of success that they do have along the Black Sea. I'd like to, two other questions that have been very curious to me, and that, that kind of goes back to the question on this end state, on Moldova, on the breakaway area that the separatists, the ones that are pro-Russian, I would love to hear a comment from someone on the panel on any actions that Putin is working on southern Moldova reference supporting his efforts along the Black Sea. I think several panelists and General Grange have hit on some important things in regard to the fact that, you know, when you fight, you have to think about, do you want to annihilate the enemy? Is that the point? Or if you're facing Russia and you're Ukraine, and now you're bloodying the nose to the point where everyone is upset in Russia as well as everyone else, and it seems that uh, there is a desire to try to find a way out. If you close off all aspect of uh, retreat, you've actually caused a situation where you're going to take the Russian army on like Paulus was taken on by the Russians around Stalingrad. And uh, I don't think that the Ukrainians, as has been mentioned, want to do that. So to cut those lines of communication, in other words, the roads on which they provide logistics and stuff, if you did cut them, that means there's no way to withdraw. And I think the forces either are going to be ordered to withdraw or they're going to have to withdraw. Uh, in regards to Mariupol, um, that gets back to securing that strip that allows to secure 
the area between uh, Luhansk and Donetsk to Crimea. Um, what I also think may be happening in Moldova is the same thing. He's having to reposition assets from one place to another. But because those LOCs don't allow him to do anything, there isn't a lot that can be done. There was the idea that uh, if this was successful, he would push into Moldova and take the separatist organization there and, and other places and try to continue to build his, as uh, Dean said on our first program, uh, his empire, not, not the Soviet Union, but the empire. I think he's finding that difficult to do right now. The performance is so bad. I would imagine that now, since he directed this, he's now looking at his staff to try to find him ways out. We're actually hearing that uh, succession may be planned for him, and it may be the director of his FSB, Bortnikov. Well, I don't know. When these things come out, are they being manufactured by us, or are they actually things that are coming out from there? But I think it's going so badly right now that whoever may be advising the Ukrainians, and I think we know some of the people who are, they might be allowing uh, for the idea that it's a good idea to leave a very powerful enemy a way to remove himself from the battlefield and then go into negotiations. Uh, if you want to negotiate a way to end this, and there's no doubt that this needs to be ended soon, um, there's always a good idea to allow an enemy a way to, to uh, recover to his home. And I think a lot of that may be what is developing. Also in regards to the MiGs, again, this reminds me of what the Slovenes did to the Yugoslav National Army when the uh, Civil War occurred in Yugoslavia. Yugoslav National Army attacked Slovenia, and Slovenia had helicopters and missiles, and they slaughtered the Yugoslav Army. They went away, and Milosevic decided uh, Slovenia could be free. It also reminds me of what the Egyptians did to the Israelis in 73. Now, in that period, the Israelis had Ariel Sharon. And he changed the calculus of everyone to where Egypt was almost wiped out, even though it had achieved an initial tactical and operational success. In this place, no one is going to move into Russia. So these forces have to be defeated in a way that allows them to recover, but they will not be annihilated because, of course, that would be a catastrophe for Russia. But it also has upset not only Putin's calculus, but I think, uh, in fact, uh, that of Xi Jinping. Now, the Chinese, in my mind, are much more careful in their depiction of things in their collection of data and their reaction to change, their ability to war game. They have much better computers and systems. They don't do as much graft as the Russians do. And as a result, you know, Putin went out to do this war and probably found out that much of what he thought he was going to have operating had either been sold or compromised. Uh, that's really what's got them. Plus, he operates on conscripts. And in China, they have a very well-trained military force, including generation fighters that are, that are very fearsome as well as they've copied most of the Soviet technology for anti-aircraft missiles, tanks, and, uh, and also anti-tank missiles. So I think we're watching something change here in regards to what may happen in Taiwan. But I believe that at this point, uh, there's an effort being made to leave the Russians the idea that the rear is open and you can go home if you simply turn around and go. Oh, that great comments all, quite frankly. I think Putin's goal in the beginning was to crush Ukraine in a short amount of time, and I think we've all seen that that, that plan failed. Uh, and so the Russian army wasn't able to live up to Putin's expectations. But Putin's got to win. He has got to have a victory in Ukraine. Now, the original concept of victory, I think, for Putin was probably capturing, uh, I think, was decapitating the government, occupying all of the sovereign territory of Ukraine and turning it back into a part of Russia and creating the Russian Empire, as Brian said 
some couple episodes ago. But the reality is he's not going to be able to accomplish that. But what he has to do is win. And the way he can get a win is to force the Ukrainians to negotiate. The Russian army has got to take enough territory and to provide enough of a threat against the Ukrainian government that he can get Zelensky to the negotiating table and get the concessions. And I have no idea what Putin needs, but he needs to have strategic concessions out of Zelensky and the surviving Ukrainian government that he can consider that as a win. And part of that concession is certainly going to be Zelensky's got to go, the government's got to go. Uh, and there's probably a number of, you know, not joining NATO, not being part of the EU, being neutral, all of that stuff, I'm sure. But the reality is Putin's got to win. He can't lose. And he's, his 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 own definition of winning is certainly going to have to change. And I think getting the Ukrainians to negotiate is going to be what Putin's going to consider and the Russian people are going to consider as a win. So anyway, back to you, General. You know, obviously times against them. One thing that as he sees the NATO forces piling on, refreshing in a way, but uh, with weaponry or other, other supplies to help the Ukrainian military and the people, He's done kind of a, a weak, but trying to show some type of allied support using Chesians, possibly some of the forces from Libya. What's your feel, Brian, on the use of some of those other other allied forces coming from Libya and Syria? I think it's an effort to show, to try to show international support for this operation. The international support for Ukraine is formidable and well-known, but I, I think it's just sort of a feeble effort to show, yeah, we have international support, too. Uh, are the Syrians formidable urban fighters? I doubt it. I think they just marched into rubble. It's not clear there really are that many of them. There are Chechens fighting on both sides of this conflict. A lot of Chechens think of Putin as the guy who leveled Grosny. Uh, the other ones are pretty much mercenaries in the pay of a warlord that Putin set up in the rubble of Grozny. Uh, who's fighting better, the Chechens of Putin's side or the ones on Zelensky's side? Uh, the ones I see for Putin's side seem very rambunctious and showy. They're making very virile claims, but I, I don't think they're performing very well. I don't really have a read on the uh, Chechen troops in the, what is it, the uh, Sheikh Mansour battalion fighting off the Donbass. I don't have a read on them. Sorry. Let's take another break for a commercial. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN. Bringing you shows like Wounded But Not Broken, Roll Call, and Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Roses are red, violets are blue. You want your disability claim? Get VDAC. End of story. Go to nifv.org. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour with host General Grange. And here's your host, General Grange. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hearing that and uh, reading that they're not, they're not fighting as well as everybody. They're feared uh, Chesians. I mean, they're tough guys, you know, as you know, in Afghanistan, uh, fighting in an unconventional way. But uh, they're not performing as well as um, some people thought uh, currently in uh, some of the urban fighting in, in Ukraine. Um, I have one other question, then I want to do a wrap-up. But one other question on what hurts Putin the most? What will hurt him the most that the, the West can? And this is a tough question because, like some of the panelists said, it goes over the edge. Is there is there a, a fear of chemical use or nuclear use or at least tact, at the tactical level? But what would hurt Putin the most going forward? We know what hurts him now. He's got problems in the back in his own country. He's got problems at his initial strategy didn't work, but what would hurt now? What would hurt him the most? Where maybe he'll think about withdrawing before negotiations. Dean? Given that Putin is an autocrat, uh, the thing that he presumably worries about the most is even if he can somehow declare victory, what does the rest of the leadership structure in Russia now think of him? Again, militarily, you've expended your best forces for limited gain. Uh, Many of the reports seem to suggest that he personally made the decision to order the invasion. Uh, There was that very strange press conference just on the eve of war where even the head of the FSB was being openly contradicted by Putin. So without a triumphal march essentially into Kyiv, the interesting question is going to be how well does he sleep at night? And if he then, if he turns around and decides to purge the security apparatus, he's the one who is going to be pushing parts of the Russian power structure into a corner. Uh, if you are watching something that looks scarily like the 1930s Soviet Union, why wouldn't you move against Putin, especially because you have the historical precedent of what happens if you don't. 
conversely, if he doesn't make a move against them, does he come across as weak? And to what extent will the knives then be out to simply get rid of him? So I think that any ability to sort of, in a sense, foster that dilemma in his mind, um, whether through propaganda, strategic communications, uh, actively encouraging, is the kind of thing that I think would lead him to seriously question how long he can stay in power. And because it's domestic, it isn't a matter of firing a nuclear weapon at at, uh, Ukraine or into the Black Sea, because really the issue is going to be how does he stay on top of the Russian power structure, which is an internal security dilemma, not an external security problem. Yeah, for sure. Thank thank you, Dean. In wrap-up, I'd like to ask each panelist for final thought, final comment. Uh, if at least one of you can hit on what else the United States could do to relieve the suffering, uh, end the conflict, at least favorable to Ukraine and beneficial to Europe and the United States itself, I'd appreciate it. But let's start. I'd like to start. Let's start with uh, you, uh, Doug, uh, on a final thought on on, a, on the program tonight on uh, the situation in Ukraine. Well, General, thanks for the opportunity to give the first of the last comments. Uh, it's been an honor, and as always, to support your program, which is so supportive of the veterans of the United States military. So thank you for allowing me to be part of it. Uh, I think one of the, the there's very little we can do on on the battlefield. Perhaps I suppose we could push more forces into the areas around Russia, but that may be pretty risky and pretty expensive. My guess is that there's two things. There's a couple things you could do. One, put significant anti-air assets along the periphery of the Russian Federation. Second is flood the zone with special operators. They're not going to be offensive, but they are extraordinarily defensive, certainly from the perspective of the Russians. So it's not going to be provocative, but they're going to bring extraordinary value added uh, to not only the defenses, but also, I think, to our allies as well. I think we need to freeze the remaining Russian currency reserves. And I think we need to destroy the Russian petroleum industry. And we can obviously, depending on battlefield behavior, we can dial that back if if we wish. But I think in the end, as I said earlier, Putin needs a win. And the, and he, I, I don't necessarily think he's necessarily politically weak because all of the inner circle, their power and their wealth, devolves from Putin and his devolves from the state. And so they all have an, 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 an they're all vested in preserving the current power structure. They're not going to be able to do that if Putin doesn't get a win. So he needs to have a win. He'll redefine what a win means. And uh, so we'll see how that, that, that plays out. I think on the battlefield, things are going to get worse than they're, than they're going to get better uh, until Putin decides that he wants to stop this. But anyway, General, thank you very much. And it's been an honor to be on the panel with my colleagues.
Well, great comments, Doug. Thank you so much. Uh, Brian, your final comments? Uh, on the diplomatic front, I think the U.S. could press, to the extent it can, three countries to push Putin into putting an end to this war. Those three countries would be China, which does not want to see its main ally disintegrate, fall apart, have uh, some sort of regime change. It's a possibility. Uh, so China could press them on that. I think Israel could press them on that. Israel ships a lot of Russian oil into the Suez, the Red Sea, and beyond. Uh, and the third would be India. Uh, Israel does not want to see a weak Russia either. Russia provides a certain strategic depth to Israel. Its main enemies are in a shambles or or uh, in agreement with Israel now. But in 20 years ago, they could in 20 years. Hence, they could be very hostile to it. But there would be nothing they could do if Russia didn't support them with arms and trading. The third country would be India, which has always had pretty good relations with Russia. They want a substantial power in Russia as a balancer against India's main enemy, which, of course, is China. So those, those three countries, I think, could push a little, put a little pressure on Putin to back down. India, China, Israel. Back to you, General. Thank you, Brian. I want to go to Dean for his final comments. Dean? First, I'd like to echo Doug in thanking uh, you and uh, this podcast for the opportunity to be here today. Um, I'm going to actually uh, not talk about Russia-Ukraine, but uh, a little bit about China, because I do think that uh, one of the interesting things is going to be what the Chinese take away from all this. And I think that for a country that has not fought a war since 1979, the Chinese are watching uh, the conduct of uh, this war. And I think one of the key lessons that they are going to take away from this is that conventional warfare is really hard. And that won't come as a surprise to any of your listeners. But again, keeping in mind that for the Chinese military, they haven't fought a war since 1979. And they uh, are very close students of other people's conflicts. Watching the complexities of modern joint operations and seeing how easily even a, an experienced military like the Russians can simply decohere because they have, you know, the Russians have fought in Georgia, have fought in Chechnya, have fought in Syria, and yet they've done poorly in Ukraine. Uh, the other thing I think that they are also going to take away from all of this is the power of non-military responses, in particular financial sanctions. And the irony here is that uh, for the U.S., we may have actually bought ourselves time to write the balance in Asia uh, over the Taiwan issue, because I suspect that one of the big lessons that the Chinese are going to take away from all this is their need to establish a separate insulated financial network that will keep the Chinese economy from being crippled the way the Russian economy is being crippled. Um, the longer this conflict draws out, the more lessons the Chinese will learn. Uh, the more they will learn about our systems, javelins and stingers and others, as well as uh, the both strong and weak points of Russian systems. So this is, in some ways, we're, we're all drawing analogies this evening. And I think this is also the Spanish Civil War from the Chinese perspective, watching key adversaries try out equipment, doctrine, uh, different methods of warfare, and meanwhile, reaping their own lessons. Yeah, thank you, Dean. Ranger Doug, final comments? Yes, I think that uh, we've covered a wide range tonight. It's been very interesting. Um, I would like to 
suggest that uh, starting first with what Gene, with what uh, Dean said, uh, the key is China, and what will it do from here? I believe that, uh, as we discussed on the first program, not the same as in past Olympics, but that in this case, because of uh, the sensitivity to this particular Olympics, the, the COVID and everything else, there was an agreement between Putin and Xi that uh, Putin would wait until after the Olympics to invade. By the same token, China would look at this to try to figure out what, if anything, it would do with Taiwan in the near term. And that may have been put off now, but not necessarily so. Chinese can learn a lot of lessons by watching how everything happened. And they have methods of figuring out how to program the lessons learned in this conflict into what they might see as they look at scenarios and other things through the vast array of computing capability that they have to try to figure things out. But as Dean has said, they haven't fought anything serious since 1979. And that's a problem. It's a problem for everybody. It's the old Mike Tyson or Von Moltke approach. You know, nothing survives. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, we really don't know what will happen. But they are obviously bankrolling the rest of the world. However, uh, with the Russians' uh, apparent decline in military ability, and possibly that may affect China as well, the world may actually stop and think about how it depends on Russia and or China for energy products, production, and so forth. Uh, we must watch, though, to make sure that our effort to try to financially impact the Russians does not cause the world to decide that America is no longer reliable and, and set aside the dollar as the universal currency. The Chinese are making a push now to do that, and they have actually gotten a number of nations to accept the yuan or renminbi in payment instead of dollars. That's very different, and it's dangerous for us because what's given us a haven since before World War II was more or less universal adoption of the dollar as the financial standard in the world. In the financial area, thinking dime now, what would really be good is if someone, perhaps not the U.S., could publish what Mr. Putin and his Siloviki and his oligarchs' actual wealth is, such that the Russian people would find out that their leader actually was probably the richest man in the world and maybe even what countries he makes his counts in, because I think that's something people don't really realize. At the same time, that would be a major propaganda victory. But there is a lot that can be done at the operational and tactical level using regular PSYOP to convince the Russian soldiers and leaders that they need to turn around and go home and or effect and surrender. And, and if they're unattached, uh, young men who've watched people mobilized at 17 or 18 with minimal training and sent into Ukraine, why they'd be welcomed as Ukrainian citizens. And that was an idea that Brian Downing had on an earlier program. I'm just simply saying, that could be done at all levels, even to attract leaders. As well, uh, when looking at a population like the Chechens firing, uh, fighting elsewhere, uh, other than in their home areas, I think what's really happened to them is that they, they do well when they're in a Muslim environment. They've been exported now as mercenaries, and I'm not sure that they're as, uh, as well acclimatized to this area as they would have been fighting in some of their home turf. They seem to have to acclimatize to an area, become used to it, and then they become the meanest of the mean. I first met my, my first Chechen in 87. I didn't even know what one was. Now I know too much about them, uh, so I'd like to forget a bit. At the same time, the main thing that the uh, Iranians must do is continue to cause what Brian called the war of attrition, and they have to continue to exact the price. They're doing very well with techniques like sniping, precision, uh, strikes by uh, anti-aircraft and anti-armor missiles. They've exacted a huge cost 
and they haven't really done much in the way of direct tank-to-tank battle. It's mostly been infantry that surges in and then leaves and, and doesn't leave a trace. This has really been bothering uh, the Russians, and I think it will continue to do so. What we can do is support those higher-level activities that would get out the idea of what Putin may be worth and what he's done to his people and that it's time for a change, disaffect him from his siloviki, the people that run his his protection shops, and also the oligarchy, which appears to be fragmenting those rich men that were empowered back in the old days when they were able to buy up Russian interests during the time of Yeltsin and have become billionaires now. So there's a lot the world can do. There's a lot the U.S. can do to uh, slow the Russians down so they simply have to retreat. And it looks like that last scene in the movie The Battle of the Bulge where they simply have to be allowed to walk back to Russia and then maybe think about what a better day may bring for them. Over to you, General. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, great closing comments. Uh, I'd like to just summarize with a few points. Uh, uh, follow up a little bit from Ranger Doug on the word dime. As we watch this conflict and, and, we, and we ponder about it, make comments and uh, talk to people that are involved in it, the, uh, the thing about diplomacy and how, how the United States deals with these situations with other allies and other nations in the world is, is so key and the power of dime and information with the media and propaganda and dis- disinformation and, and highlighting and sensationalism, et cetera, how it affects the war in the military. Well, you better have a good one if you're going to have one at all. And then of course the economics, the economics and its effect on war and then war on the effect of economics that was brought up in this program. And because of the veterans out there listening to our program tonight, let's take it from that level at the National Security Council level and just go down a bit to where it affects most of us and talk about just a simple acronym of MET-T, mission, uh, enemy, terrain, troops available. And think of the mission. Was the mission understood by the Russian military going forward? What is the, does the mission achieve the end state, the enemy? What type of enemy was involved in this, how they're fighting, watching this unfold on the battlefield is extremely interesting. And it gives you kind of flashbacks from when you from each of us have served. And the terrain. Terrain in Ukraine is is very mixed from the Carpathian Mountain, Pathian Mountains all the way through the plains, the marshes, the river networks. Uh, a lot of channelization, a lot of go and no go terrain that you have to consider. And then, of course, the troops available. Did Putin have the troops available to accomplish his mission? Did the Ukrainians have the troops available? Or are they relying on the spirit of the nation to defend itself and mobilizing a lot of its citizenry into uniform and carrying an AK? And then it makes you look at the training. Are you training the way you're going to fight or possibly fight? And it makes me feel pretty good about American training, training that uh, Western nations like U.S. and U.K. and France and Germany, and that it's good training compared to a lot of places throughout the world. And, and I, I have a pretty good feel as people on this show tonight about how well the Russian forces, or not so well, that they train. Dean knows it. Brian knows it. Doug Wise knows it. Ranger Doug knows it. And you can see it unfold as you watch the as you watch the television, hear about the fights. And then how you handle the population. 
in your in your area and your in your area of operation where you're you're fighting. Population is important. They take you up to fight with Molotov cocktails, or they become refugees, or they clog your roadways, or you end up killing them in the front of all the world to see. The population is as important in where you fight. And lastly, in closing, the leadership. Leadership is the cause; all else is effect. Leadership does make a difference, and you can see that between the leadership of Putin and the leadership of Lenzinski and why that makes a difference. So thanks. I thank the panel again for being on the program tonight, and I thank all the veterans out there for what you have done, what you still do, and who you are. Good night. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives.